Around 80% of trials are delayed because of problems with patient enrollment. Some 10 to 20% of research sites fail to enroll even a single patient. If there's no one who looks like you in the trial, it's very hard for physicians to make good recommendations. And, and we've seen this get so egregious that, you know, they, they discovered that the, the AI that they had written to help decide who gets the next organ transplant was inadvertently skipping people with different racial or ethnic backgrounds because there was nobody in the data set. And so the AI just thought that every everybody who should get it looks the same. And it took them a while to figure this out. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma podcast. My name is Jennifer Curtis, and I am your host. Our focus today is clinical trials and how we can improve the experience for all stakeholders involved to get drugs to market faster and improve patient outcomes. The challenge, though, is that the vast majority of clinical trials are delayed. Some even fail to recruit a single patient. And while there are many drivers of this, challenges around the stakeholder experience is one of the most significant barriers. To discuss this, we have two of ZS Associates' global experts discussing how clinical trials can become more human versus process-centric. Our first guest is Chris Crabtree, global leader in ZS Associates' R&D excellence practice. Hello everyone, I'm Chris Crabtree. I'm an associate principal in our London office and I'm leading our efforts to help pharmaceutical clients really design and run more effective clinical trials through the way they engage with sites and with patients. Um, so thanks for inviting me today. Great. So Chris, today we're talking about creating more human-centric clinical trial designs. You know, before we jump into all the, the details around that, what does it actually mean to be human-centric and, and why should we care about it? Well, yeah, great question. Um, I guess to start with, the industry has been talking about patient centricity for, for years, um, particularly in the commercial domain, um, but especially in clinical trials, I think there's still a long way to go. Um, almost without exception, clinical trials generate a very poor experience for, for patients. And they create a very poor experience for site stakeholders like investigators and coordinators. And so I think the industry is now starting to realize that there's actually an ecosystem to design for. And so for us, human centricity is really about understanding all the human players in that ecosystem, not just the patients, but also the people at the sites, the people interacting with the sites. And it's about understanding how those individuals think and behave, how they make decisions, and really what motivates or indeed demotivates them from participation in clinical trials. And so that's really got a lot of implications for how we design clinical trials uh, and also for how we operationalize them. So when we think about then, you know, all the benefits that you kind of talked about the way that you're, you're describing it, like what's the value of that and, and what's preventing us from going in that direction today? There's some very kind of commonly used statistics that describe some of the issues that we're, we're facing in clinical trials. Um, sources vary, but you know, around 80% of trials are delayed because of problems with patient enrollment. Some 10 to 20% of research sites fail to enroll even a single patient. And delays, well, they cost sponsors up to, you know, it can be millions of dollars a day. That's a day. And so there's a lot of, you know, some underlying issues at play. 
um, clinical trials are actually much more competitive than they were in the past. You know, there are a lot more trials. They're competing for the same patients and for the, the attention of the same sites. You know, there's a lot of saturation actually of, of trial sites. Trials have also become more complex uh, and more burdensome. So more endpoints, more sophisticated designs, more amendments. And so, you know, we, we think that sponsors need to be able to cut through this, this noise, this competition in the market and, and really differentiate themselves and their, their trials, their studies. With human-centric design principles, we think sponsors can design studies that have less burden, so less burden on the site and less burden on the patient, but also a, a much clearer what's in it for me. You know, they need to be able to design an experience that the sites and patients want to have, and they need to be able to clearly communicate the value proposition for everyone involved. Yeah, I think that the steps that you've kind of outlined the value, you know, as you articulate it, seems really clear and some really interesting statistics around that to really support it. Um, you know, kind of looking at it from the outside, it seems obvious, but it's not happening. And why is that? It's a tough one. I think, I think part of the challenge is, you know, to start with, clinical trials are incredibly complex things to design and run. There's so many moving parts. There's, there's regulations, obviously a huge focus on, on safety and quality of the data. And so you've got this very complex thing to start with. I think that's led to really a big focus over the years on, on efficiency, you know, how, how efficiently can we run these things? Uh, and indeed, sponsors have, have been outsourcing large parts of the business of clinical trials, including the interaction with sites, with patients, uh, to contract research organizations. And so in, in a way, I think sponsors have lost some control over the, the experience that they can create for these stakeholders. But I think it's, you know, it's one of these things that you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So there's, there's this big inertia to overcome. So you've got incentives that are holding things back. For instance, a big, a big focus on first patient in as the, as the big landmark date rather than the actual trial completion. Got challenges of, of skill sets, you know, got a lot of people who are focused on project management, uh, on efficiency and not on relationships. And then you've got organizational silos. Um, so, you know, for instance, clinical development, designing and trial, somewhat in isolation of clinical operations, such that when a trial is out there, it's actually hard to operationalize. But, you know, I think that the need has become so acute, you know, the statistics we saw earlier, uh, that we're finally starting to see some change happen. So we are seeing change and we are starting to see a shift. What are some of the examples? So, you know, maybe different models or approaches that are starting to emerge um, that you're seeing. So we're seeing it appear, I'd say, sporadically uh, in different ways. So in, um, in some sponsors, we're seeing now dedicated groups that are focused on bringing more of the voice of the patient into the trial design process. In others, uh, we, you know, we're seeing people start to think about the experience that they can create for their top sites. And I'd say perhaps in some of the more advanced companies, more advanced situations, we're seeing the setup of um, kind of cross-functional structures like a design lab or design studio structure, which bring together different functions, help break down some of those silos 
and ensure that the design and execution of trials is more holistically human-centric across the pipeline. So, you know, some progress, but I think a, a lot still to do. If you were to make recommendations on, you know, companies looking to start embracing this mindset and, and making, you know, a difference to the way that they're delivering these to be more human-centric, where should they start? Great question. I think one of the best places to start is more systematically using insights, so customer insights or, or research with sites, with patients as the foundation for decision making. Now, this is a lot more than a, a KOL ad board or a patient ad board. This is about really understanding all the decision makers in the ecosystem around a trial, understanding their different motivations. And, and when I say that, you know, there are going to be different investigators, different sites who are motivated and make decisions in different ways. Someone at a top academic site may be most motivated by the novelty of the mechanism of action, um, you know, the opportunity that the drug presents, whereas perhaps an investigator at a more, you know, commercially run clinical research site is more focused on how easy is it to run this thing and, and what's the financial gain. And so understanding those different motivations through this research and then thinking about how do we bake that into the protocol design? And then how do we importantly bake that into how we engage with those sites once a trial is getting ready to get started and, and then running? So kind of that insights piece is, is a first, um, an important step. I think from there, touched on this earlier, the, the interaction or the interface that the sponsor has with the site and the people at the site is a really important place. And I think if, if sponsors have outsourced a lot of that to a CRO, that's something to, to, to have another look at. And we're seeing some sponsors partner with their CROs in a different way, perhaps bringing some of their own employees to that sponsor site interface so that there's more control over that relationship. I think that's an important step so you can then act on those insights that you've gleaned from the, from the research. So those are a couple of things. I think you know, it's not necessarily an easy thing to get moving. I mentioned earlier, there's some inertia, there's, there's some incentives holding us back, there's some silos. But also one of the things that's challenging here is, is actually showing that there's a return on investment for doing these kind of things. And I think, you know, doing that on a single trial and showing that, it's, that it pays off is tricky. Doing it across a portfolio or across an industry, that's where it starts to, to get traction. We actually recently led an industry round table on human-centric trial design, and, and it was clear there's an appetite for the industry to work together on this. So I think we'll get there. It's, it's going to take, take some effort, but I think the companies that perhaps choose to do it first, whose leaders kind of take that step without necessarily having you know, the full confidence in the financial return, but can see the wisdom of it, I think those that take the first step are going are gonna to have a lot of benefit here. Chris discussed the importance of understanding the entire ecosystem to design an optimal trial experience. Our next guest, Jacob Browdy, Thetis's global leader of the behavioral science practice, will take a different lens to understand how we can improve the patient experience and willingness to engage in trials. Thanks for having me. I'm Jacob Browdy. I am a principal here at ZS. I lead what we call our Applied Behavioral Insights Team, or ABI for short. And it's basically just a bunch of people trying to help commercial organizations think about how behavioral science and cognitive science 
can help them improve all types of behaviors. Could be employee behaviors, customer behaviors. In this case, we're going to talk about um, patient behaviors and uh, specifically around whether they're interested in enrolling in clinical trials and trying to help close some of the gaps that we see in representation. Great. So you touched on a few points there, Jacob. I think one, one thing to just kind of set a baseline with is what does it mean to be human-centric from a behavioral science perspective? And, and why should we care about this when we're talking about clinical trials? It's a good one. Um, I spend all day talking about this. So in our world, human-centric means being aware of how people make decisions. So for a long time that we thought that people made rational decisions, we thought things through and we tried to make good choices. And if people were making bad choices, the problem was they didn't have all the information. And if we could just explain to them the information that they needed to know, then they would go about making good choices. And I think, you know, you can look around the world today and at climate change and political and COVID and all sorts of things and see that that is absolutely not true. Um, there's very clearly something else driving our decisions. And, and so what the last 20 years of behavioral economics, cognitive science have really strongly illustrated is that we're, we're all running a second system that's influencing the decisions that we make in ways that we don't notice. And so the system's not particularly smart, uh, but it is very efficient, which is good because we're all making thousands of decisions every day and we need that efficiency. And so for us, human-centric means thinking about how we communicate or engage with people such that it takes into account both of the things influencing their decision-making so that they can make the best decisions and not be inadvertently nudged towards poor health behaviors or treatment choices or what have you. And then thinking about this in the, the context of clinical trials, I think, you know, kind of the immediate kind of uh, area that comes to mind is thinking about kind of patient engagement. Uh, and I know that you know the the topic of underrepresentation um, by certain populations in clinical trials has been a, a really big topic, and has raised the question of you know what's really driving this. I think this is an area that you've done quite a bit of research in around some of the let's say like cognitive biases that that might be at play driving it. Could you share a bit more about what you see as some of the the opportunities in this area? Yeah, I'm happy to. This is a, an important topic for ZSers. Um, it's important for our clients. I think I think everybody in the medical field, whether you're you know consultants like us or you're actually doing the science, sees the gap between you know the representation of ethnic and racial minorities in the overall population and the representation of those people in the trials, and looks at those numbers and goes, "Well, that's not good at all." Right? And we're seeing those consequences now, especially as things like AI start to get involved in healthcare or in oncology trials where we're looking at personalized medicine. If there's no one who looks like you in the trial, it's very hard for physicians to make good recommendations. And, and we've seen this get so egregious that you know they, they discovered that the, the AI that they had written to help decide who gets the next organ transplant was inadvertently skipping people with different racial or ethnic backgrounds because there was nobody in the data set. And so the AI just thought that every, everybody who should get it looks the same. And it took them a while to figure this out. We developed a study where it's, it's the first, let's call it the first in a series. So we're going to start by looking at the patients. We looked at about 600, 700 patients across breast cancer, across COPD and asthma and IBD. So we wanted to look at sort of a range of different conditions who had 
never enrolled in a trial. A certain percentage of them, about half of them had heard about it and had been offered a trial before. So we had both people who hadn't heard about it and had heard about it. And we wanted to investigate what are the psychological factors? What are the cognitive biases that may be influencing whether they say yes or no? They're interested in, in enrolling in the trial because we think that this would help clinical trial designers, site coordinators, investigators all over the place to try to help close this gap. So what were some of the hypotheses that this research explored? Well, so we focused the investigation in sort of four key areas based off of research that had been done in the past. We had some hints as to what we should look at. So that the four areas that we we're really focused on are social trust. So like, who do you trust and how do you decide? How does the people around you signal trust? Lived experience. All of these are people living with chronic conditions, some of them pretty severe. And so how have their experiences with healthcare systems and with their condition influenced their reaction to the opportunity to participate in a trial? Health literacy, obviously a big one, right? We think quite often around, oh, well, we're, we're presenting things that are very technical and clinical to people who don't really have that background. And so maybe that's a key area. And then subjective evaluation. So basically like, how do they value the potential opportunity of participating in a trial when thinking about it compared to other things that they could do instead? And so looking across those four different domains, we investigated 22, yeah, about 22 discrete cognitive biases. And we tested these very similar to the way that we test medications. We used a control and a test group. We randomized people into one or the other. And we looked to see based on these different bias prompts, do they make different decisions about their intent to enroll or their willingness to learn more or to be screened than they do in the control condition? There were 12 biases that did significantly influence their interest in the trial. And so those are the things that we think are primary opportunities to help investigators, coordinators, uh, clinical trial designers understand. That sounds really interesting. Can you give some tangible examples of what that looks like? Yes. So overall, I would say we were very surprised by the findings. A number of the hypotheses that we had going in turned out to be wrong. So for example, the overall baseline willingness to enroll in the trial was positive across all groups. So people identified as Black or African-American, people identi identified as Latino, people identified as white, all above neutral, so in the positive range, and all the same. We didn't see that, for example, our white respondents had a, an overall higher baseline interest in clinical trials than our Black respondents. And so right there, okay, we're saying to ourselves, there seems to be willingness, so that's not the problem. So what else can we look at? So then we looked at, well, what's driving trust? And we ran a test where we asked people to assess how much they would trust a clinical trial recommendation from a doctor based off of how long they've known them versus based off of whether they shared the same racial background. Uh, and we again, we randomized people in, into test or control groups. And consistently, what we saw is that length of relationship was far more impactful to how much they would trust that recommendation than shared racial background. And so you know, we, we sort of went in with the assumption that, oh, we, we need to have better representation of Black doctors or Latino doctors within these groups maybe we do. We're not saying we don't, but that didn't seem to drive trust nearly as much as this is a doctor I've known for several years. Another one that really surprised us is 
people who had been approached about a trial and had said, no, thank you. When we asked them, do you think you made a good choice when you said, no, thank you? They said, yes. Consistently, they thought that was the right thing to do. But then when we asked them, okay, so what if you're approached with another trial? Are you interested? That was also yes. So just because they had turned it down in the past and felt like that was the right thing to do did not mean that they were not still significantly interested in future trials. And that one caught our attention and is, I think is one worth investigating when we talk to site coordinators and site investigators for the next stage of the study, because potentially they think that one no is a no, is a blanket no. But actually it's not, it's just no to this thing in particular, but I'm still interested in what else you're working on. Another one that really surprised us so we went in under the assumption that using more simplified language and making enrollment in the trial seem easier would increase intent. And actually, it backfired in a number of groups. A number of groups, when we use more clinical language in the flyer about the clinical trial, and when we were more descriptive in all of the different steps, we broke the, all the steps out. Here are the nine different like, small micro steps you have to go through to get in the trial versus here are three sort of macro steps. They were much more interested in the trial than if we tried to make it seem easy and we tried to use non-clinical language. Um, the only people who that didn't work for were people who had had some graduate education. So there seems to be some correlation with, if I've had a significant amount of education, give me the simplified version and make it seem easy. Whereas if I've had some college or less, I actually am comforted by some of the clinical language that you're using. And I want to know what are all of the steps in detail that I'm gonna to have to go through. And that really surprised us. And I, I, think, I think a number of folks that are designing trials and patient engagement materials would find that really helpful and interesting. The other one that, that surprised us is we, we were really focused on well, maybe it just seems like too much work right now. Maybe, you know, I've, I've got all this list of to-dos this week and things are hectic. And so the idea of going through this process and rolling this trial right now feels like too much. And so if we move the enrollment into the future, so let's talk about it now. Let's decide if you're interested now, but you won't enroll for, I don't know, a month, that that would actually make it seem more palatable. And people would say yes. And we were wrong about that one too. Actually, people were much more likely to enroll in the moment than they were if the enrollment was put off into the future. Extrapolating this more broadly, what does this mean when you start thinking about the implications for trying to close the gap? So number one, I think we need to do some investigation with the investigators and the coordinators because we don't see any difference in interest in clinical trials across the different racial groups. So that to us points to that that's not the gap, that there are other things. Um, number two, I think the way that we think about engaging with patients to help facilitate screening in and enrollment needs to have um, longevity of the relationship at the center because that really drove a lot of the trust. So potentially that means we need a bigger network of doctors who feel comfortable talking to patients that they have been seeing for a number of years about the benefit of trials. And then I, I think personalizing or thinking through the way that the materials or the communication works, right? Our research points to, they actually appreciate the clinical language. They actually appreciate the detail for a number of these cohorts. 
And so not just defaulting to, okay, we're going to oversimplify things and we're going to make things seem really um, easy to enroll. Not that people don't need extra support to make it feasible to do the trial. So maybe they need you know, rides to the clinic or to be able to do some of the measures at home, some of those sorts of things that we're investigating, but not describing that to them backfires. The other thing that it really points to is focusing in on the benefit to the patient. So one of the tests that we ran, we actually presented the trial to them as you failed a couple of medications and this is your next best step. Or clinical trials really have um, a big benefit to people like you, right? Having you participate in the trial doesn't just benefit you potentially, but it, it benefits all the folks like you. The you failed a couple medications and this is your next best step, significantly more likely to drive enrollment. So you, you've given a lot of suggestions and examples about how things could be different. Um, are, we, are we seeing any interest in the wider industry and in starting to apply uh, more of a behavioral science lens to increasing engagement? Yes, definitely. Um, I, I mean, I, I know at ZS, we're already engaged with a number of teams across different client organizations that are focused on helping to close this gap within their clinical work. Um, and I've also read about and, and heard that there are other teams working across the industry. I, I think we'll see more and more of this, especially as we continue to move towards you know, more specialized medicines, this gap becomes really critical to close. Where do we go from here? Personally, I'm really excited about the future. Um, I, I think the first step is how do we take some of these findings and start working within with trial teams, you know, and within the specific maybe maybe you're doing an IBD trial and you're specifically trying to close the gap with people who identify as Hispanic or Latino. Um, what are some of the nudges that we can deploy? How can we train your investigators and your coordinators on you know what's going to work and and what might backfire? So starting to put these insights to work, I think is the first exciting step. And then the second step is there are other players, you know, that the, the investigators, the coordinators, the CROs, they all impact this gap as well. And so doing a similar type of study on the psychological factors and cognitive biases that might be acting as drivers or barriers for them, I think is the other part of this. And so that I'm eager to get started designing and fielding that, that study. I think it'll be really fun. From the discussion, it's clear that pharmaceutical companies need to understand the entire ecosystem of stakeholders who participate and an understanding how they make decisions and the motivations behind them that create a better clinical trial experience. That's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma podcast. <music>